Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing there? It is David. You know the score. It is the podcast. Tries to bring economics to life, make it that little bit less jargony, and hopefully a wee bit more relevant to all of us. This week, what I want to talk about is the role of the entrepreneur, of the self-starter, of what I would call the person who expresses themselves commercially in the economy, how important these people are, how in Ireland we are doing much better than we ever have done in the past. And more importantly, what I want to talk about is the type of people, the type of personality traits that drive somebody to say, fuck it, I'm going to do this on my own. So it's kind of the entrepreneur as punk. This is our uh, theme this week. And as always, I am joined by Johnny Boy. How are you, dude? I'm very good. Welcome back after your many miles of yeah. air miles. Uh, yeah, no, I do feel I do feel that I've been traveling around the world. We went from, I told you, we were in Morocco uh, last week, as you know, did the podcast, which was great from miles up in the Atlas Yeah, Mountains. that was brilliant, actually. That was really good. It was, it was really fantastic, fantastic. But talk to me. I've been away. Brexit. Let's quick hit at the top. Yeah, Brexit. I mean... <sighs> Everything and nothing has changed. It's the same old stuff, more talk, all that. But there are two interesting points. Apart from Johnson now pushing for the election in December, there were two interesting points that I read about last week. One was the Royal Mint have put a stop to, they were producing these 50 pence coins as a commemorative coins for Brexit. They were all going to be released on the 31st and they put a stop to it. <laughs> Are you serious? Because they, they don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure why that's not going to happen or, you know, everything may change within within the month, as we know. So... Um, well, that's fascinating. So they stopped that last week. On that point, Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist of the Bank of England, mm-hmm. is coming to Kilconomics. Oh, brilliant. And he's the guy, and I think there are some tickets left on kilconomics.com, but he's the guy who's going to have to actually navigate the whole thing. Yeah. He's the, he's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the brains of the Bank of England. And it'll be fascinating to hear what he says, what he can say to me, because I'm going to yeah. sit down and talk to him, what he feels he can say, what he can say technically. And What about uh, the other guy, the Canadian guy? The Canadian, well, you see, I was actually trying to explain to Canadians the other day, uh, Mark Carney is a Jesuit-educated paddy from Calgary. 
right? Right. Surname Carney, right? Yeah. So they were saying, but I said, look, you've got to understand that basically, you want to understand Carney, you've got to understand the Jesuits. And I remember my my father-in-law up in Belfast when we were having arguments. Ballet. Ballet, wait, ballet. Having arguments about, you know, the future and things. And Billy would get really pissed off at me after a while. And his biggest insult to me was just, stop talking like a fucking Jesuit. <laughs> so, so in the north, the worst thing you can be is a Jesuit, right? Because the Jesuit isn't giving you a straight answer. We couldn't help it. We can't help and, it. And the Billies want a straight answer, you know? And the Jesuits, he said, you're saying like a fucking Jesuit. <laughs> anyway... At the north, they're back in play. The DUPSC are... Uh... Yeah, but they're having their annual conference at the moment. And, of course, they're all up in arms. And accusing Johnson, rightly, of... Because this time last year, Johnson turned up to their conference, promised them that no British government, no British prime minister will jeopardise the union with Northern Ireland. And, of course, this year, a year on, that's exactly what Johnson has the... done. So they're saying to him, you know... Why don't you talk honestly? But the other thing I was going to say, which was very interesting, it was a, a YouGov survey done last week in conjunction with Cardiff and Edinburgh universities. Basically, they asked the question about violence and protests. And the majority of both Remainers and Leavers basically said it was a price worth paying for violence against MPs. Wow. Which I think is kind of frightening. And they also said another part of it was that, yeah, it's it's acceptable for protesters to be injured. It's a price worth paying. So actually what this, what I was thinking about, the first thing that struck me was, Jesus Christ, is this going to be the consequence of Brexit one way or the other, when it finally happens one way or the other, that everyone will be out in the streets? Following on from all the civil unrest that we're looking at all around the world, whether it's Chile, Lebanon, Iraq, Hong Kong, you know, France. The Catalonian you know, issue. Look, the Catalonians, what, what we're yeah. seeing is, I think there's three things going on, right? One is, and I've said it before in the podcast, and I say it again, we are witnessing the end of the United Kingdom. Yeah. That is the yeah. big thing. And it's funny when you come back from Canada and you put it against the background of the Quebec, the series of Quebec independence referenda that eventually the Quebecers got really close to it. Mm. And then over the last 15 years, the Canadian government has managed to take independence out of the uh, the mainstream and basically give, giving the Quebecers more and more. So if you think of it, look, the end of the United Kingdom begins with English nationalism unleashed. Mm. And English nationalism, like all nationalisms, isn't a party. It's like a movement. It's like a leaderless thing. It's a feeling. Mm. Nationalism is a feeling, right? And that's where it's interesting because that's where you, you link it into the Hong Kong. Obviously, the Catalonians are feeling, but the Gilets Jaunes in France, this was, these yeah. are all these, what they call leaderless rebellions. It's what's happening in Chile, what's happening in Lebanon, all these things. They're a sort of a feeling that I'm falling behind, that I have an stake. And nationalism is part of that thing. If, if you feel that you are not being represented, then it's very, very easy for you to go out on the street. So the first thing is, I think, English nationalism unleashed, and it's very difficult to put that genie back in the bottle, Yeah, will prompt a counter-nationalism called Scottish nationalism unleashed. And it will prompt a nationalism in Ireland, which is called Ulster nationalism. So unionism is not near really about Britain. It's about Ulster nationalism. 
It's not really, because as we know, you know, up until last Monday, unionists in Northern Ireland or the DUP people were very happy to be British but not have abortion, not have gay rights. Yeah, yeah. They were imposed on them last week and they went bonkers. Yeah. So Britishness, although they really feel British, I feel that it's more that it's ultra, ultra nationalism. So that's the first thing. That can go in three ways, John. One is the Quebec way, which it becomes gradually diffused. One is the velvet divorce between the Czech Republic and Slovakia, mm-hmm. which happened after the fall of communism and was a very mature, sophisticated adult arrangement where two countries divorced from each other, yeah. no rows, split their differences, so we're going our own way. And the third, of course, is the one that I see every summer, is the Yugoslavian model. Yeah, where nasty. Where England is Serbia, Croatia is Scotland, and Northern Ireland is Bosnia the divided, ethnically split down the middle area. I don't think that will happen in the UK, but the way in which Yugoslavia broke up so quickly and so violently, if you take out the Yugoslav army, which would be the British army in this case, and the Yugoslav army did not behave impartially, they behaved pro-Serbian, i.e. pro-English, it's not inconceivable to see these things happening. You know, that that Scotland goes, then there's a counter-reaction in the UK to try and keep Scotland within the Union. There are massive, massive street demonstrations, both in England and in Scotland. Yeah. And all these things you talk about. I mean, the interesting thing is Chile, since Pinochet, has been incredibly peaceful. Mm. And it just exploded as if out well, of nowhere. Well, that's kind of more down to, and this is a probably a, an issue we should come back to for a full podcast, but... You know, we're talking about there's there's two issues at play here. One is the nationalism that you, that you talk about, and indeed, you know, Scottish nationalism has been bubbling under for years and oh, years yeah. and years. So it's just coming to it's been given a, a platform now. But it's the wealth divide that's yeah, occurring, which we spoke about a couple yeah. of weeks ago. You know, it's all about if you believe that the conveyor belt upon which you are is moving even slowly in the right direction. So you're you're gradually doing better. You're gradually having a better stake. Your kids might have a better stake. You feel you're doing better than your parents and your parents did better than their parents. That sort of story. As long as that's broadly going the right way, you buy into the status quo. Yeah. The center holds. But if that begins to atrophy, then you think, well, who protects me? And that's when you vote for a feeling, yeah. for an idea. And the idea can be represented. Like, so for example, you think something like I was in the States this week, like make America great again. Mm. It's just a slogan. It's mm. an idea, but it, it's in a very persuasive idea. If you are feeling a little bit shut out, yeah, take back control. It's a really, really attractive idea. Yeah. Ulster says no. Yeah. You know, these are attractive ideas for people who feel threatened. In, in Russia, as we spoke about yeah, before. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean... I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which we are going into revolutionary times across the world. Yeah. Where it's interesting because next month we will celebrate the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. And that ushered in a 30-year period of American domination, free markets, liberalism, all these sort of things that we would regard as normal but maybe they've run their course. And if you think of 30 years or 40 years before 
the Berlin Wall came down, it was the end of the Second World War. Yeah. Then you get a bigger, another big upheaval. Then you have socialism, communism. So I think the most important thing for me is always that at these crisis points, what was extreme becomes mainstream. And the things that were really mainstream that sustained us for 10 or 20 years yeah. become redundant. Yeah. And I think we're at that sort of tipping point around the world. You can feel it. You can, I, I, I'll tell you about where I was now in the States. Uh, well, what I was going to say is that, that all this upheaval and unrest that seems to be spreading across the world, and to get back to what we're going to talk about today, kind of puts the brakes on entrepreneurship and innovators. Well, and I would argue the opposite. I would argue the other oh, way. Okay. But before we start, just a, a quick update. As you know, uh, John and I and JM love doing this. And it's it's an absolute hoot, and, and and I'm traveling quite a bit, so we're bringing yarns and stories and ideas back from all over the place. But as John said the other the other week, it does cost. It costs a lot of time to make it, costs a lot of effort to make it. So if you fancy it, and if you really if you enjoy the podcast, we would be delighted if you would support us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. Uh, we'd really appreciate that. And in the same vein, we have our big night in Vicker Street. Coming up on the Woo! 28th of November, which is our live podcast as part of the podcast festival. The tickets are at Ticketmaster. And again, we'd love to see you there. It'll be a bit of a laugh the whole evening. Uh, we're going to give John a rake of Valiums so he doesn't get all nervous getting up on stage. And it's going to be, it's going to be lovely to, to meet you because we've always been fascinated as to who, who's out there, who's listening. That's going to be a good night. Yeah, I am, yeah. as we said before, I am terrified, but... Uh, Give us a stage and we'll use it. So, we kick off. So, you were off in Buffalo and you were raving about it. Yeah. So, I want you to tell me a little bit more about that and, and uh, what you found there. Well, as, as you know me, John, you've known me for a long, long time. When people tell me, you know what, if I was you, I wouldn't open that door. I'd never go in there. <laughs> I always open the door, right? I always... Ooh, I want, yeah, I can't help myself, right? So... I was tweeting that and everyone's saying, oh, you know, particularly the Canadians, oh, don't go to Buffalo, don't go, it's awful. It's a mm. terrible kip. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go to Buffalo. And what I found there was an absolute treasure trove of James Joyce's letters. The single biggest collection, and I'm talking mad stuff I'll tell you about. Really? Is in the University of Buffalo. How, how did it end up there? And I'm not a Joycean buff, I'm not a, but I, I'm fascinated by him, love the work, Love the individual even more. Mm. So what happened, right, is that in 1948, James Joyce dies in 1941, 1942, I think, in uh, Zurich. In 1948, after the Second World War, the Joyce family, Nora and the two kids, yeah. and of course there was the extended sisters and all sorts of the, the Joyce family. It's a great, in fact, if you really want to get into Joyce, you've got to read Richard Elman's biography of Joyce, which I've read two or three times, and I dip into every now and then. It's absolutely really, it's brilliant. The, it wouldn't be really my kind. Of I know, thing. I, I mean, know, my brother's stuff. I know it's not your cup of tea, but I tell you, it's a biography. It's fantastic, right? And Richard Elman, mm. American academic, went to Buffalo to source more most of the material. So, how does Joyce's stuff end up in Buffalo, yeah. which is a pretty nondescript American city, which we'll talk about in a second? Nineteen forty-eight. A woman called Sylvia Bleach, who actually published Ulysses through the Shakespeare and Co. Company 
in Paris right. in 1921. The one person who published it, right, she had an exhibition of Joyce in 48 in Paris after the Second World War. Yeah. The reason she did that is nobody had any money in Europe. Everybody in Europe was broke. Imagine after the Second World War, no Europeans. Of course, yeah, People yeah. were starving in 1948. Yeah. And the Joyce family had no money. So they put on this exhibition in Paris. This American academic, a guy called Oscar Silverman, who was an American uh, English literary academic, goes from Buffalo University to Paris, realizes that this is an amazing, amazing treasure trove of all of the letters of the single most influential writer in the English language of the 20th century. Yeah. Also understands the Joyce family are broke and they have to sell it. So he goes back to Buffalo and the university shouts out to its philanthropic backers. And this is the interesting. So Buffalo right now is a city which is shorthand in the United States for poverty, for segregation, for urban decay, etc. Yeah. It might be that now. It's mm. actually changing but it might have been that like 10 years ago. Yeah. In the 1950s, Buffalo was one of the richest cities in the United States. It was called, really? the, city, it was called the City of Lights at the turn of the century because all the hydroelectric stuff from Niagara, from the rivers and the Great course, Lakes, yeah, yeah. generated huge, huge power to generate electricity. It was a manufacturing base. Why? Because the cost of energy was almost zero in Buffalo because they were beside the Great Lakes and right, they had okay. hydroelectric stuff. So they had huge car industries, huge manufacturing industry, and of course, huge trade. And I'll talk to you about that in a second. It was incredibly wealthy places. And if you go there, you use all this Art Deco stuff, these amazing huge houses, right? Yeah. All a bit like Detroit and Cleveland and these places. It was really, really rich. Yeah, Cleveland's when, a dump though. I will I'll come back to your time in Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> so when you are really, really rich, you have really, really rich people that are philanthropists and they back the artistic community. So the university had loads and loads of money. So this guy Silverman said, I'm going to buy the Joyce collection, goes over to Paris and buys wow. everything for the Joyce family yeah. so the Joyce family could live because they had no money because you forget right. that Joyce may well have been the most fated artist in the world at the time, one of the most fated artists, yeah. but he had no money. Have you any have idea ever... how much they bought it for? No, and they keep that very secret. Right, Okay. okay. So that's the backdrop. But then I always thought, like, what about Buffalo? Before we talk about Joyce, what about Buffalo? What's the city? Again, and then, so I went to Buffalo to this really weird place here, off a motorway. It's a red brick building, nondescript, like any other building in sort of mm. suburban America, really unimpressive. And in this library is, there's the original Ulysses. I was reading Ulysses, written by Joyce. They have it. Like, he wrote it, he hand, he handwritten the yeah, whole the thing. Transcript the transcript of it. His original thing. I was wow. reading it. I was reading, you know, I, yes, yes, I will, I will, the last page, reading it. With notes and stuff. All the notes on the side, there's notes. Brilliant. There's, there's brilliant. Wow. He, and he, and he, his notes were in, in, in red, for Finnegan's Wake, his notes were in red, orange, and blue. And they believe that he was trying to signal things. So I did all these notes about things. Really? I, I, picked up, I picked up Arms and the Man from Hemingway. Hemingway giving Joyce his first edition. And this is a great story. So I picked it up. It was brilliant. So it's like with to Joyce, and it didn't go on James, yeah. to Joyce with affection and admiration, Hemingway, Ernst Hemingway. Yeah. But then there's a little bit in it that Hemingway publishers took out all references to the word fuck 
in to Arms and the Man. And Hemming was really pissed off. So he gave <laughs> Joyce the copy with all the fucks back in, right? <laughs> Put in, right? So there's all this stuff. There's, there's first editions, there's WB Yeats ordering the first edition of Ulysses from the French publisher. Oh, right, okay. There's extraordinary stuff. Like, there's, you know, Joyce's cane, his glasses, yeah. everything. It's all there. Everything. And who there's, goes to see it? There's nobody apart from me. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's the most, if this was in Dublin, like, there's a, there's, we've got a customer today, lads. No, but somebody tweeted out, and thank you very much, uh, whoever it was on Twitter, David Buffalo has this extraordinary Joyce collection. So I went to see that. And then I started thinking about Buffalo. And then you think that Buffalo was so rich originally because of the Erie Canal. Mm. The Erie Canal was a canal which was dug from the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, all the way. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To Albany, New York, to meet the Hudson River, which went down to New York City. And then you think, why was that? And if you look at America, if you look at the way America is formed, look at all the great rivers of America. All the great rivers of America, like all the great rivers of the world go north-south. Very few rivers, rivers go east-west because they were all created by the Ice Age. Mm. So the Ice Age happens, the ice withdraws. The up. Amazon goes east-west. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but because, it's, because it's miles course, and miles yeah, away. Yeah. But all like the North European, so the great Russian rivers, the Dnieper and the Volga all go north-south. Yeah. The Rhine goes north-south. The Danube doesn't because of the Alps, right? It goes yeah. east-west. Right? Shannon. Goes north south. One of the great rivers, yeah. And but look at look look at the Missouri, look at the Ohio River, look at Mississippi River. They all go north north south. So so America drains into the Gulf of Mexico in effect, mm. right? That's the gully of America. But 
the real wealth of America in the 1850s, 60s, 70s was how do you get the breadbasket, the Midwest, which was producing corn at a phenomenally cheap price and wheat and flowing fruits, how do you get that out to Europe? You have to create rivers that go east-west. Yeah, of course, yeah. So the way you did this was you created canals. So you created the canal, the Erie Canal went from Buffalo to Albany, New York, and then it met with the Hudson River, and then it went down into New York City. So the only way that New York City could become a great port was it had to be attached to the hinterland, and in order to do that, you had to create a massive canal. And that canal was dug by who? The Paddies. Yeah. Right? So the Erie Canal was dug by Paddies, about 300 kilometers long, and its mouth is at Buffalo. So Buffalo becomes the trading center of all the great trade from the Midwest. And it begins to become quite wealthy then. The Paddies are a huge part of Buffalo's history. So much so that South Buffalo, like South Boston, is still full of Paddies now. Right, okay. Absolutely huge community. And we've been there for hundreds of years. And what happened to to the city then? It was after the canals. So you get the first of the canals, then the electricity, then the manufacturing... And then, of course, what you get is the beginning of the decline of American manufacturing, which happens in the 1960s. Right, right? okay. The Motor City decline in Detroit, the decline in Buffalo, all those great American industrial cities get knocked in the head by the first phase of globalization, which is Japanese car imports, which begin to decimate their their base. And what you find then is the city begins to go into a significant decline, so much so the population halves. So the center city is only 250,000 people now, which would have been been Mm -hmm. much, much bigger at the time. But in its heyday, it had so much money that it bought this Joycean stuff. And the interesting thing for Irish people as well is from Buffalo launched the great Irish invasion of Canada. Go on, tell us about this. Yeah, this the is Fenian the Fenian invasion of Canada yeah. in 1866, right? Yeah. So this is like, when I'm there, I love all this stuff. So yeah. I'm fascinated by this and I'm trying to find it all. So in 1866, the Fenians yeah. launched an invasion of America to Canada. They were trying to get the Americans because there were so many Irish people in America at the time. And I remember that book we spoke about on the very first podcast, John, uh, How the Irish Became oh, yes. White. Yeah, yeah. Noel Ignatius' book about how Irish people became white, where, where, where we actually became part of the white race as opposed to the under race that they was regarded as, as being. This is all set in the 1850s, right? Mm. Massive Irish immigration into New York. Yeah. This is upstate New York. Massive Irish immigration in there undermines the wasps the Wasps go mad, and of course, Canada was a British colony. Yeah. So it was British troops there. So the Fenians decided that they would ferment a revolution in America against Canada, i.e. against Britain, yeah. by invading. And they did. And uh, it was called the Battle of Ridgeway, which That's happened right. That's in... right, yeah, I do remember this. All man. this good shit, man. So for Irish people, Buffalo is exceptional. And I'll just tell you the last thing before I talk to you about Joyce. What did I have in Buffalo. Buffalo wings. <laughs> in, a, in an Irish bar down in the number one ward, the first ward, which is the old Irish area of a forgotten city. And there's a place called Jeannie McCarthy's. Google it. Right. Little boozer, great wings, great yeah. beer, lots of chat, lots of fighting Irish dodgy. stuff. Well dodgy. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that great movie? I don't remember that movie, Angel Heart. 
Yeah. Do you remember the bars in Angel Heart? Yeah. They were always a little bit... It was so, a bit Louis Cipher. That's the boy. Yeah. Robert De Niro. So, Mark, listen, hang on a second. Like, we could talk about this stuff for, for hours, but we'd set out, you were going to talk about entrepreneurship and stuff... Can we get back to that? Yes. What, yeah, what's, yeah, the, yeah. what's the link there okay. with, with Joyce and the whole so, lot? Uh, my obsession is the fact that the artist and the entrepreneur are the same individual. I'll tell you a story. Go on. James Joyce was both an artist and an entrepreneur. James Joyce set up the first cinema in Ireland. Right, yes. Yeah. The Volta Cinema in Mary Street. If you go to Joyce's biography, what you find is that Joyce is sitting in Trieste, and his sister Eva is sent over by his brother, Stanislaus, who was sent by the dad, right. his dad Stanislaus, who immortalised the great line of shite and onions, which <laughs> is one of the great lines, uh, because Jimmy was always broke. And they went to said, what are you doing over there in Trieste? You know, you've got a job teaching English, you're always broke. And what was, Joyce was obsessed by the cinema. Right. He went to the cinema all the time because you can imagine the cinema was like the internet of the time. Yeah. You know, 1904, 1905, you know. What, what was around? What cinema was around? So actually? this is the interesting. So he spent all his days in the cinema in Trieste. His sister goes over to see Eva, sister he really loved. What's Jimmy doing? He's in the cinema. Eva says to Joyce, Jim, do you know that there's no cinemas in Dublin? There were seven or eight cinemas in Trieste at the time. Mm. And Joyce said, Really? No cinemas in Dublin. Let's set one up. Let's be entrepreneurs. So what he did was he went to the fellas who were backing the cinemas in Trieste. And one of the fellas owned a cinema in Bucharest called the Volta Cinema. Right. And that's where the name comes from. And he had no money, of course. So Joyce went to these entrepreneurs and said, I will be your representative. But I have no money, but I want sweat equity. So he negotiated. He got 10% of the profits. Right. He went to Ireland with the money from the people from Trieste. He set up, he did the whole thing. There's a great, in Elman's Joyce, actually, it's on page 300 if you're interested in this park. I know, because I was reading it earlier on. It's amazing, (laughs) right? So Joyce set up the first cinema. And not only that, he convinced them by, he he, he put a big map of Ireland on the table. So this was like his pitch. It was like his his Elon Musk pitch. Yeah, his elevator the, pitch. Yeah, yeah, to the, to the equity guys, to the private equity guys, because they were private equity guys of the time. And he, he said, he pointed to Belfast, Cork, and Dublin. Mm. There was a million people in those three cities, not one cinema in 1910. Isn't that amazing? Not yeah. one cinema. And he went and he set it up, I think in 1911, the Volta Cinema. And he charged people, he did the marketing, he did the advertising, he raised the money, he bought everything. He paid. There's great descriptions about how he yeah. was so crazily enthusiastic. But And this is all the old silent cinema. With, this is with all the, the silent cinema. Plinky-plunky uh Plinky-plunky stuff, right? Yeah. But if you can imagine, right, so at the time, the cinema was like the internet. It was the new technology that was going to bring people together. It was revolutionary. And Joyce was at the vanguard. Joyce loved modern stuff. This is the really interesting thing about Joyce. He loved invention. He loved technology. Mm. He was obsessed, like in, in, in Ulysses, you'll, you'll see the Bloom was obsessed by the sewers and the waterworks and how it worked. And he, tried, he spent hours agonizing of how the trams could work better and everything. Joyce was interested in urban architecture. Yeah. He was interested in all sorts of stuff. But at his core, he was an entrepreneur. He wanted to set things up. Now, I've always thought that the entrepreneurial mind and the artistic mind are very similar. So 
the artist doesn't want a wage, they don't want a boss, they don't want insurance, they want to express themselves, they want to create something today where there was nothing yesterday. They want to stamp their authority. They feel the artist, whether you're writing a book or you're painting a picture or directing a movie, you want to feel that you've got something to contribute, which is better than everybody else's, and something new, so Mm. you contribute to the canon. You actually back yourself, which I call is... I've always thought this in the great adventure of commercial self-expression, which is what I love. Right. If you think about the entrepreneur, the businessman, they're the same type of people. They don't want a wage. They don't want a boss. Certainly they don't want a boss. They don't yeah. want anybody telling them what to do. They want to be free. They want to be liberal. They want to be a sovereign individual. And they want to do something different. So they see, for example, the way a business is run and they say, you know, fuck it, I can do it better than that. I know how to do it better mm. than that. I'm going to tinker around. I'm going to have skin in the game. I'm going to change it. So what I've always felt is that the artist and the entrepreneur are the same type of person. And the entrepreneur setting up a company is an incredibly courageous act. It's yeah. an incredibly brave thing to do. It is much easier as a life choice to have a job. Much, much easier. Yeah. Because Don't I know it, actually? You, well, we're both freelancers, so you know this. Yeah. We've been working for ourselves for years, right? But, you know, if you do well, you get paid. If you don't do well, you go bust, right? Yeah. You have skin in the game. You are always trying to figure out different angles and different ways of doing things. And when I say courageous, I really mean that. I mean, it, it is a brave act. Mm. And I've always felt that business is punk in musical terms, right? Is that basically it's DIY. It's going to fuck you. I'll do it myself. And so the characteristics that you see in someone like Joyce, a man who reinvented the English language, who tore it up, spewed it out and recreated it, that urge for him to write Ulysses was exactly the same urge in him to set up the cinema. It's the type of character he was. And if you look now at entrepreneurs all over the world, and again, as I say, entrepreneurs is a kind of a wanky expression. Mm. I mean, this idea, what I call is commercial self-expression. If you want to express yourself commercially, then you need to live in a society that offers dignity to commercial self-expression. And I think the difference in Ireland in the last 40 years has been we are increasingly a society that dignifies, gratifies and recognises taking a risk more than we did in the past. And I link it to, and I'm really, really convinced of this, that the disappearance of the dogma of the church and the dogma of the state, which basically set horizons on what people could do, is linked to the takeoff of the economy through the mechanism of commercial self-expression. So if you can express yourself sexually, morally, live with who you want, sleep with who you want, hang out where who you want, say what you want, without worrying about the church or the state, all those things that broke down here yeah. in the last 40 years, certainly the last 20 years, the economic flip side of that is commercial self-expression, which is that you can take a risk and you know you won't be vilified or mocked for taking a risk. And I've always thought there's a great Italian communist called Antonio Gramsci, Mm-hmm. made the mistake of being a communist under Mussolini's time and Mussolini put him in prison and starved him to death. Not a nice way to end. Very it's interesting it's man, it's right? But he said that life 
is a conflict between the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. And I love this expression. Yeah. So basically the optimism of the will, like setting up a company is an optimistic act. It means you believe in the future. You say, you know what, I'm going to change the future. I'm going to grab it by the scruff of the neck. I'm going to do something different. So therefore you believe in tomorrow. And the enemy of optimism of the will is pessimism of the intellect. Because intellectuals are always educated to criticize, to knock, to find fault with, say, well, I wouldn't do it if I was you, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I believe that so the enemy of commerce is not money or taxes or balance sheets or economics. The enemy of commerce is the pessimism of people's intellect, which is why I think a lot of intellectuals disparage commerce, which okay. is why I think a lot yeah. of academics and people who are paid to criticize and paid to knock and praise to analyze, you know, the difference between the Joyce and the people who write about Joyce, yeah. if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Is that they are driven by the pessimism of the intellect, which tries always to take the wind out of the sails of the entrepreneurial, free starter, the punk, who I see the yeah. punk in economics. And this is why I believe the more highfalutin the intellect, the less likely they are to do anything. I, I totally get that. It makes perfect sense. So what you also have, though, is as you talk about commercial self-expression, it requires a huge amount of creativity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that whole creative process, yeah. you know, the basis of that is a good education. Like everyone has ideas, but in order to develop those ideas, to be able to take it to the next phase. And uh, yeah. so if the intellectuals are the pessimists, you know, we also need the innovators. That's that true. No, I agree with you. Like, what you find, interestingly, sometimes the most educated people are the least innovative. The people with most degrees and little pieces of parchment yeah. and mandates from other people are actually the least innovative because they tend to hide in the professional classes and the educated classes and they don't take risks, right? So I think the ideal society is one that educates people in as much as we can. Like academia is more of a conformed... Well, academia, for me, and this sounds quite controversial because I teach in Trinity College Dublin, <laughs> is a cesspit of failed ambition, fear and jealousy. Oh, controversial. No, I think it's... it's I, I really believe this. Yeah. I really believe this. And uh, I think that... What is much more interesting for me, this is why I much prefer to hang around with people, with non-academics, people who take risks, people who have skin in the game, yeah. people who get up in the morning and think, fuck it, how am I going to make a crust today? That sort of energy, which is the energy because you live in the world of risk. Yeah. And that's what artists have. And that's yeah. what all creative people have. What academics have is what's called tenure. Once you give somebody tenure, you basically castrate them. You take their balls away because every Monday morning they don't have to worry right. because somebody's paying the bill. Yeah. And what you find is academics turn very quickly into being critics rather than innovators. So they knock people rather than take risks. And if they are going to take risks, they will write in peer reviews, which is their own people. So they'll never risk going out into Joe Public. But I'm talking about something much more elemental than academics and yeah. intellectuals. What I'm saying is 
the way I see society going is unfortunately towards more risk being shouldered by the individual. So the millennials and then the generation coming behind them, the generation Y, etc. Giving rise to the gig economy and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So we have to encourage the hustle in people. I think hustling is much more interesting than analytics. And this idea, like, so when I come back, the Joyce is around flogging tickets and he's trying to negotiate with painters for painters and decorators and he's buying chairs and he's buying, he's talking about rent and he's taking money from people and he's doing this, that, that. That urge to live in the world of risk is so courageous and it takes so much balls Mm. and it's a totally different skill set to the professional classes, to the contented classes and to those who are happy to let somebody else sweat in order for them to have a wage. And I think the pendulum is swinging quite dramatically. So when I see Joyce in Buffalo, and when I see the history of Buffalo, and I see the ebb and flow of the economy, and the fact that if you had banked all your ambitions on the canals, then you're gone. If you'd banked all your ideas on auto industry, then you're gone. Is that nothing survives its impact with events and the market. So the very characteristics that Joyce showed of inventiveness, risk-taking, and frankly waving your two fingers at convention are exactly the sort of characteristic that the great entrepreneurs have. And they are the characteristics that I believe we should inculcate in our kids because they're going into a world of risk where having that resilience to get back up when you get knocked down, to get back up and say, I'm going again, is going to be the difference between failure and success. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content, which you can access via Patreon. Peter Frankenbein, ladies and gentlemen. That one of the ways that the Chinese are trying to work that out is to say, we're going to do the Belt and Road Initiative. We're going to rebuild the Silk Roads that's going to allow other people to connect into this happy world where all of us in Asia get along with each other because we don't have problems about religion and division and corporations. So we won't mention the Uyghurs and so on. The Chinese, they, don't, they edit that bit out. But they try to create a structure to say we're stable and Europe and the West has always been difficult and dangerous. And I think we need to confront there's some, there some truth in that. And we now need to start working out what is our reply, what's our response. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.